Clark Elman of asacredjourney.net. I'm a spiritual director, facilitator, and guide, and you're listening to Pilgrim Podcast, a show exploring spirituality and intention in travels and daily life, and what it means to live like a pilgrim at home and abroad. Are you planning a pilgrimage? This episode is brought to you by Journey Guide, a step-by-step travel companion for your pilgrimage of a lifetime. Journey Guide is a multimedia travel resource infused with soul, including guides and writing prompts for each stage of the journey, worksheets and resources to go deeper, interviews with seasoned pilgrims, and more. Learn more about how Journey Guide can enhance your next pilgrimage at asacredjourney.net. Welcome back to Pilgrim Podcast. Today I am talking to Amos Smith about mysticism. Amos Smith is a United Church of Christ pastor in Tucson, Arizona, and teaches contemporary Christian mysticism in person and online through his website, Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots. And we'll be sure to put a link to that website in the show notes as well. He's the author of Healing the Divide, Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots, which is part of Richard Rohr's Living School Curriculum at the Center of Action and Contemplation. And his latest title is Be Still and Listen, Experience the Presence of God in Your Life, which was recently released on June 12th. And currently, as we're recording, this is available for Kindle on Amazon for $6.99. So we're not sure if it'll still be available once this episode launches, but I highly suggest checking it out either way. So thank you for joining us, Amos. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you, Lacey. I appreciate your time. I appreciate having me on your show. I, I've listened to your show and and like your style and glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here too. And I, I want to point out too that you are you work and collaborate with Rich Lewis as well, who was on about six months or so ago. We talked about silence in the contemplative path. So your work certainly overlaps with his, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I would say Rich Lewis is a soul friend and he's he just has a similar approach to me, uh, an emphasis on centering prayer and an emphasis on daily practice, uh, mm. emphasis on discipline. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm really excited personally about our conversation today. While I'm you know, familiar with some mystics and their sayings and teachings, I have a feeling all that you'll be sharing will be uh, new for me as well. So I'm excited to further my own journey with mysticism and hopefully introduce many others to to the journey too. Great. Well, I'd love to start with you sharing your own spiritual journey and perhaps how this path found found its way into your own your own life. Well, or perhaps I should say your life found its way onto this path might be the mystical way of saying it. You know, I I grew up in the church, but that really wasn't where the uh the journey began in earnest for me. Hmm. Because when I was in high school, I used to go mountain climbing in the Shenandoah Mountains in Virginia. And I remember just when I would uh, be up high in the mountaintop, you know, when you're up high in the mountain, all of the the noises of of the birds and, you know, insects and so on, it just dissipates to a point where it it gets really quiet on the top of a mountain. Mm. And I would sit there um, after a long hike. And of course, the air is thin up there. But I would just have this distinct uh, feeling and it was, it was so deep and it was just in my bones that I was part of something much larger than myself and that everything was interconnected. I mean, I, I know scientifically, you know, that I share 72% of the DNA with, uh, the, you know, alpine uh, trees, 
And I also share uh, 98 point something percent of my DNA with chimpanzees. So obviously, you know, everything is interconnected and you can say that scientifically, but to, to experience it is a, is a whole nother thing. And, and so up on the mountain, I would just, I would have these recurring experiences and it just made me want to go, go deeper. And then I guess uh, the real watershed moment for me was in 2001, I did my first 10 day uh, centering prayer retreat at Benedict's Abbey in Snowmass, Colorado. And at that 10-day retreat, I met uh, Father Thomas Keating. And over dinner, uh, he said to me, he said, if you practice centering prayer 40 minutes a day, and if you do at least one extended retreat, silent meditation retreat every year, you know, at least six to 10 days, he said, you will make progress. And I have a, I have a background as an athlete. I used to be the captain of my wrestling team. And I've been a disciplined person. You know, I was one of those people in high school, I'd get up at 6am and run and, and I would, I would do laps during lunch and I, I was a pretty highly disciplined person. And so I applied that athletic discipline to the words that Keating gave me. And so rarely, you know, for the last 15 years or so, rarely have I missed the 40 minutes a day of, of centering prayer and rarely have I missed the, uh, the yearly retreats. And as a result of that consistent practice, it's really, um, it's just changed the nature of my approach to just about everything. And not only that, but, but there's been a physiological change in me. I used to have lots of tension in my back hmm. and I would also have, I had tension in my jaw. There's still some there, but most of it uh, through centering prayer has dissipated. And in the centering prayer community, they call that unloading. Wow. And it's when you go, when you go into deep silences, uh, much deeper relaxation than sleep can afford. The body uh, takes that as an opportunity to release tensions that are stored in the body. And sometimes, I mean, it sounds really good, but sometimes the unloading process is excruciating and really deep-seated tensions will come out and it's very painful. But when it's done and, and when you released it, you feel this profound sense of release and relief. And for me, you know, I, I just started living my whole life just differently. And, uh, you know, my, I mean, yeah, it's it just every, everything became uh, something that I, I think was, everything became energized. Everything, you know, became more um, just vivid and, and clear. And, and I was more excited about life. And Rich Lewis has, um, has mentioned a similar effect that this daily discipline has had on him, you know, he just has a lot more energy and motivation for life and doesn't require quite as much sleep as he used to. And he has something that he calls relaxed efficiency, which is what happens for him at work where, you know, he's no longer stressed out, but he's very productive. And so there's, there's all these things that, you know, are byproducts of this practice, but, but primarily what it's about is getting in touch with our, our source or our core and you know, away from the binaries and, you know, dualistic this and that thinking that creates so much tension and going into a place of, of deep peace and, and freedom. Oh, yeah. Well, and I can see how, too, it would resonate so much with Richard Rohr's work at the Center of Action and Contemplation, especially today when there are so many binaries that surround us. To be able to dip into that well. Oh, things are so polarized now. Now, did you encounter mysticism through your introduction to centering prayer or 
had you obviously you encountered it i think you know in your own self through these nature experiences but as something further to explore when did that happen for you well i i think it was one uh, it was one retreat in particular it was in early january of of 2008 i did a, a 10 day retreat my first one at Snowmass had been 2001, and this is this was now 2008. But the one in 2008, I just, I guess one way that I try to explain it is that, you know, in the in the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal comes back into the loving arms of his Abba, you know, he um, he no longer has to say anything. Nothing more is required. There's absolute forgiveness. Mm. There's an absolute sense of of homecoming and peace. And um, on some level, you know, I, I just said to myself, you know, this is what I was created for. And mm. I don't need anything more in life. Like I've been seeking for so many years, but I found what I've been seeking for. And it's, you know, it, it's what the authors of the Philokalia, which is an Eastern Orthodox text, would call our original nature or our original purity, or they sometimes refer to it as a pre-fallen state. But n- no matter how you refer to it, there is this um, like pristine, pure source, which is palpable and tangible. It's not like spooky or ethereal or, you know, what some people associate with mysticism, which is kind of frou-frou. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it's very grounded and it's very real. Yeah with a capital R and it's just, you know, once we've touched that, it changes everything. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you've kind of been already defining it through your experience, but what would, how would you define it to, to the lay person, to someone who's completely new and might have those frou-frou, you know, associations? What is mysticism? What is a mystic? And I know also too, there's a, well, maybe there is and maybe there isn't a differentiation between Christian mysticism and I know, for example, Rumi uh, is considered a Sufi mystic or there's a strand of Judaism that's mystical as well. And so how would you introduce us to each of those? Well, my, my, my roots in mysticism, Christian mysticism are very clear and very grounded, and that is within the context of Quaker tradition. mm I was a member of the Society of Friends for five years when I was in college in Santa Cruz, California. And during those five years, I, I came to, to really love the deep silences of the weekly meeting for worship. And so it was in that context that I, I just I started to have this passion for silence, and I started to seek it out. And as a result of that, I actually went to India for a year, and, and I, I went more deeply into you know, into meditation. And, and it's actually, um, Lacey, it's funny, but I think Westerners are just so, so deeply, deeply, solidly rooted in their minds that to get them out of that space into what I would call a mystical space, they almost need to, to like dump in or jump into the deep end. And so what I, what I sometimes recommend for people is what I did in India. I mean, you don't necessarily need to go to India, but, but there are SN Goenka Vipassana retreats that are 10 days long and they're in complete silence and there's no talking, there's no uh, reading material allowed, there's only two meals a day 
And by the seventh or eighth day of doing one of those retreats, and anybody can do an introductory retreat, you don't have to be Buddhist, but it's just a way to just jump into the deep end of, of this of mysticism and to really see what it's all about. Because otherwise, you know, yeah. we, we tend to just be kind of, you know, gabbing about it. Yeah, or dabbling. Exactly, exactly. But I think Westerners in particular, they, they almost need to just, and that's why I really recommend these these 10-day retreats. I, in, for me, the 10-day retreats in the Centering Prayer tradition have been the most amazing. And so, so yeah, you know, I, I think sometimes when we talk about mysticism, it's easy to, to even attempt, you know, in various ways, silence, but it's so difficult that we just give it up in no time. Yeah. But as far as you were talking about the layperson, how would you kind of describe it to a layperson? An analogy I would use is like, for example, my relationship with my wife. We, you know, we just had our, our 10th anniversary. But when I first met her, you know, it was a little clumsy. You know, we, it was a little awkward. Words didn't come very easily. And I think that's how it is for somebody who's new to faith. You know, they're not really sure what they're doing. They don't really know what it's about. After a few months, you know, our conversations became much more kind of organic and fluid and easy. And then, uh, you, you know, in time, it was the same thing with physical intimacy. You know, it starts out is kind of clumsy, but in time, you know, you really get to know one another in a deep way. And that's perhaps an analogy of, you know, of, of mystics of Holy Communion, you know, communion with God, that it con- you're constantly going into, you know, deeper levels of intimacy. And now after I've been with her for 10 years, you know, we can be sitting on the couch and she'll just be in my arms, you know, sitting in my lap. And there's nothing said, you know, for maybe 10, 10 or 15 minutes. Nothing needs to be said. Actually, if you said something, it would take away from the moment, you know. So there's this kind of, and, and that to me is what intimacy with God is about. It's, it's you know, it's, it's gradually kind of working through the various anxiety and so on and getting to a place of greater and greater intimacy until finally you can just rest in the arms of the Abba, you know, like the prodigal son story. And um, there's nothing more that needs to be said. You know, nothing more is required. Everything is forgiven. You know, there's there's acceptance. Of course, none of those, you know, analogies really work because meditation and intimacy with God is much deeper than anything that we can comprehend, you know, so. Yeah, but intimacy seems like a, a key, a key word to describe. Yeah, and that's why, that's why one of the keys books of scripture for the Christian mystics through the ages has been the Song of Songs. Mm. And, you know, the, the Song of Songs is, is basically, it, it's this romance, it's this love affair, it's the marriage of the soul to Christ. Yeah. And to me, that's really what, you know, the, the Bible is supposed to be a, a book of love poetry. That's what it's supposed to be. Mm. But the tragic thing, especially in Protestant tradition, is it became this legalistic thing of like, I'm right and you're wrong. No, I'm right and you're wrong. And these are my arguments of why you're wrong. And that's what, what you know, it's been for so many uh, centuries. And that's why the church is divided and redivided and subdivided itself over and over and over again, because this person had the right interpretation of the truth, this other person didn't, and so they had to form a new denomination. But these are all exercises in missing the point, because, you know, as mystics have, have exclaimed through the ages, you know, why, why have all these people traded the the bridal chamber for the courtroom. You know, who wants to be in the courtroom? You know, 
we need to be in the bridal chamber. We need to be in that place of intimacy and, you know, and, and a deep sense of, of belonging and homecoming. Yeah, which, of course, gives you a very different lens of reading the Bible, it seems, as well. It, it, as you're talking about this, I'm getting the sense that mysticism is it's experiential and yet I know you can easily trace, particularly in in Christ, in the cosmic Christ, almost the great mystic, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and you know, you know, one way we can think about the cosmic Christ, which I like to think about, is a lot of writers, especially, you know, mystics, uh, Christian mystics of the ages have talked about the pre-existent word with capital W. Mm. And that word is singular. So what we what we do when we're uh, you know engaging our minds and our and when we're talking is we're we're dealing with words which are binary and dualistic because you know words by their very essence and nature are dualistic. Yeah. And so that's the level that we're speaking on but there is a a deeper level which is beyond the senses. And when the senses are suspended and we no longer have any kind of you know, sights or smells or sounds, and, and we're just still and quiet, um, and the senses are suspended for long enough, then um, what the Orthodox writers refer to as the spiritual faculties start to engage. And that's when we are no longer engaged in words, plural, but we start to be in communion with the word, singular, and we start to, to be in touch with a singularity or an absolute ground. Which is no longer there's no longer any binaries. It's it's there's no it, it's just you know it it's eternal. It, it's no longer it's not in time. It's um it's characterized by great peace and great joy. But it's it's categorically different from this other level of mind, which is binary and and totally wrapped up in the senses and sensory phenomena. So yeah, the cosmic Christ or the preexistent Word, I like those as a way of thinking about you know what we're doing in this kind of uh, silent prayer. Yeah. Well, and I imagine too that dipping, you know, below the senses is not to negate embodiment, but instead once you come out of that silence and that place of intimacy, your senses are even deeper. The way you interact with the world is even deeper. I, I know I was looking through one of your books and you talked about how when we think of Jesus Christ, you know, some or human and divine. One party has mostly human, the other party is focusing on the divine. And it seems like with this practice of science, of centering, of intimacy, that they feed each other. Yes. And so there's there's two primary aspects to me of religion and religious experience. There's the relative, which is the the path of action and it's it's relative and it's it's binary, it's dualistic. Then there's the absolute, and that's the path of contemplation, and that is uh, is infinite, and it's uh, non-dual. And so these these are the two aspects. And you could say that the one, the absolute, is the word capital W. The other is words lowercase W. The one is divine capital D. The other is human lowercase H. But I th- I think that we start to celebrate sensory experience even more when we've experienced the absolute, when we experience the divine, like what you were saying, because then we we become wholly convinced uh, in our being. It's not something where it's not ethereal. It's not some dusty, you know, 
bound book on a, on a library shelf or something, but we, we've internalized this ground. And because we've experienced this more with the capital M, then um, all of a sudden, you know, normal sensory experiences day to day are no longer as cumbersome. Like, like we're, we just settle into the moment more easily and we just allow for, for the roller coaster ride of the senses to happen without getting overly anxious and desirous of, you know, satisfying our, our sensual desires or needs or whatever. And also not, not angry or afraid of, of losing them. We, we just, because through meditation, we have learned the art of letting go over and over and over again, all of a sudden, normal sensory everyday life is less cumbersome because we we're no longer clinging. We're no longer, you know, crying when, when uh, the lollipop is taken from us, you know, when I, when I was five, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm moving beyond that now. I, you know, hopefully we all are to some extent, um, but I think that's really, you know, what we're, what we're trying to do. Well, and you keep, I keep hearing you bring in contemplation as well. Is there a difference between mysticism and contemplation or are they synonyms for the same thing? That's a good point. I, I think that I, and it, you're helping me to clarify, I think the reason why I gravitate towards mysticism uh, in, instead of contemplation is because I think there's a lot, people have a lot more preconceived ideas of what contemplation is. And the word itself seems to indicate that it has something to do with thinking. Yeah, we use it in other respects as well. Right, like contemplating something. Mm-hmm. I think I prefer mystery and mysticism because people have less of a clear idea of what it is. And, um, you know, they, they haven't been scripted as to what it is really. And so I think it's, it's easier to, to really convey, you know, in a fresh way, what you're trying to say. Yeah, I, I think so as well. It's yeah, the mis- mystery is at its root, isn't it? It's right there. And so it seems to contemplation because we associate it with thinking, we can start to think that, you know, it, it can be something that is mastered. Whereas mysticism has the mystery in it and it will always, that's what it's about. It'll always be part of that. Well, and I think the reason people also steer away from mysticism, especially evangelicals, because there's a lot of controversy around mystical texts and mysticism. For example, uh, you know, the gospel of Thomas, you know, there's just been a lot of controversy around it, but it's obviously one of the key mystical texts of, of Christian tradition. And the Philokalia is another um, key mystical text of Christian tradition. But, you know, some Protestants just not sure, you know, what to do with it because it's so experiential and it, it really moves away from beliefs and doctrines and, you know, ways of belonging to actual experience. That's what it's about. Yeah. And I really think that that's the revolution in the United States of the 21st century is people are less interested in belief systems and belonging systems. They want actual experience. They want to experience religion for themselves. Now, that might mean going to Calcutta and working with the Sisters of Charity in India, you know, and experiencing what that's like. Or it might be, you know, praying as mystics prayed, not just reading what they wrote, but but actually praying as they prayed. So I, I think that's what people are really thirsting for is um, is experience um, because because experience is most real, you know. I mean, and experience is also 
it's re- it's resilient and it's resistant to um, you know it, it's resistant to to persecution. I mean, some of the monasteries in the East were the most resilient to persecution because they they had deep experience. And you, you're not going to let go of deep experience. Um, you might let go of some doctrines or, you know, uh, you might let go of a belief system. But if, if you've really internalized something, you're going to, it's deep and in, in within you and a part of you. Yeah, it's lived. Right. In more than one sense of the word. Yeah. When you were talking about monasteries of the East, I want to touch back on some of the mystics of the past as well. I mean, so often we think of it as a historical thing. So I want to look at it at the past, but also contemporary as well. But I I know of, I think Meister Eckhart was perhaps my first introduction to mysticism. Mm -hmm. And then um, learning, I didn't grow up in a tradition where we talked about saints or anything like that. And so starting to notice the saints who might be considered mystics, but I was reading in your work, you're often referring to um, the Alexandrian mystics or the desert mothers and fathers. Yes. Well, the uh, the desert fathers and mothers are, are fairly well known. They were primarily between the third and the fifth century, and they um, and they had various kinds of uh, skeets and monasteries and enclaves in the Egyptian and Syrian deserts. But within that group, there was one particular group and uh, they were the leaders uh, of that time, and they lived in Alexandria in Egypt. And the, the most notable uh, ones who were part of that group were Cyril of Alexandria and Athanasius of Alexandria. And they just, um, I refer to them as the Alexandrian mystics. Some people refer uh, to them as the Alexandrian fathers. And I think either is fine, but, but I think I'm just trying to clarify that they for me, are Christianity's mystic core. And they, they have a profound history. They're grounded. And what, the, what they do is they just, they over and over again, they encourage us who hold the creative tension between opposites to not take one side or the other, to not get into the gridlock of polarizations, which is so important in our time. And to, and to just, uh, you know, if, if there's two horns of an argument to just Hold on to those two horns and allow yourself to get bucked, you know, but don't don't give in to just one or the other that hold on to that creative tension. Mm. And in time, what will happen is, is that the binaries and the, and, and the dualisms will start to give way to, um, to paradox, mystery, ambiguity. And that's what I think mystics are comfortable with. They're comfortable with words like controversy, like ambiguity, like mystery, like uncertainty. It's no longer frightening. It's like they can live in that space. And as a result, they, they can create peace in this world because they're, they're not quick to take one side or the other. Yeah. Well, and it seems like, as you were talking about earlier on your experience in India, that what I know of many of those is that they went to the desert. And so they removed themselves and then people, pilgrims would come and visit them. And that's even um, the roots of the the Christian practice of spiritual direction, the Christian strand of spiritual direction was from that time as well. Yes. Yes. Well, this, this friend of mine, uh, this friend of mine, Heather, she said a funny thing. She said, you know, those desert mothers of old, she said, they renounced those cities and went into the desert. All I want to do is renounce the laundry for my meditation cushion. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's like the 21st century version, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
Well, I guess I should point out that you live in the desert as well. And I'm, are you, you're still in a metropolitan area and yet you've got these desert, this desert landscape surrounding you. Does that uh, lend itself to your own spiritual search, your own intimacy with God and mystical experience? Well, you know, the desert, um, I think the original meaning is, is without habitation mm. and also uh, solitary. And so I, I think that generally speaking, especially with all the social media and technology, we have just so many distractions just all over the place. Mm. And, um, and what the desert reminds us is, is, you know, we don't need all those fillers, you know, that we can, we can let go of the laundry and, and we can sit on a cushion, you know, we can let go of, of the Twitter account and the Facebook and everything. And we can, you know, and we can just settle into some silence yeah, or walk a labyrinth or, you know, some of my friends who are contemplatives, you know, they, they do calligraphy or they, or they paint. Whatever it is for you that gets you out of your head and into a place where you just feel at home in the world, you know, and you feel joy. I mean, my nine-year-old is a mystic, you know, he, he just, he looks up at the great blue sky and I know what he's thinking to himself. He says, this is crazy. <laughs> you know? And so, so I, I, I mean, we all had that as children and, and what psychologists are telling us, especially Jungian psychologists, is that over the years, what we've done is we've suppressed that. And so that natural mystic that was in all of us over the years with all the social scripting and with all the education and everything else, we've just suppressed it, but we can retrieve it in a, you know, in a sophisticated way, we can uh, reclaim it and um, bring it back into our lives. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that would be a, an entirely different episode, I suppose, to dig into the union stuff that I love so much. But, you know, that even in our dreams, that there's this this unconscious, that this mysticism, mystic way is trying to make itself known to us if only we release our overstimulation. Yes. And settle in and listen in for that wisdom of experience, that deep knowing. Well, and you know, I would encourage, I would, it, it, when it comes to Christian mysticism, I would also encourage, you know, those who are listening to your, to your podcast right now, who, um, you know, maybe who've been brought up Christian, don't give up on Christian mysticism too quickly. You know, uh, Meister Eckhart, there's the Sacrament of the Present Moment by Jean-Pierre de Cassade, one of the most amazing mystical works out there, if you ask me. There's uh, the cloud of unknowing. There's the Gospel of Thomas. I mean, there's the Philokalia. And then there's teachers like Cynthia Bourgeau and uh, Felina Hirwitz and Thomas Keating and Richard Rohr. And, you know, there's just, I don't know, there, to me, there's a, there's a real resurgence of Christian mysticism in our 21st century today. And, and I just see some of my peers, you know, jumping on a, a Buddhist bandwagon or something, which is fine. You know, I'm not criticizing that. But but don't give up on Christian mysticism too quickly because there's really a resurgence now. Yeah, well, that's what I was just about to ask you, actually. Are there any other names, past or present, that you would say that people might recognize and say, oh, that's that person would be considered a mystic or that person could teach you? about that path. I know you've probably just given me your main ones. Well, and, and one of my, one of my favorite ones is 
you know, you were talking about Jungian psychology. Well, I, I, I brought it up. And, you know, one of the main things in Jungian psychology is that we have to work with the shadow. Yeah. We have to work with those things in our life that we hide and suppress and deny about ourselves. And when we work with it and we bring it back into our life somehow and transform it, then we become an integrated human being. Well, for me, one of the great examples of this is Parker Palmer. Yeah. Parker Palmer, you, you may know that he has um, a debilitating clinical depression, and sometimes he's been hospitalized for it. But he's found a way to move through it and just write some amazing things. And one of my favorite, and he's a Quaker, by the way, but one of my favorite of his books is called Hidden Wholeness. Mm. And it it's kind of goes with Richard Rohr's idea that everything belongs. You know, it's, it's those things in our lives that we really detest the most, you know, that we, that we shun, that we don't want to be associated with. They have a way of, of transforming us the most if we um, get past our fear and if we work with them and, and look them in the eyes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so good. And that moves from those binaries you've been talking about to that place of in-between, of union, of unification where... And she say, everything belongs. Just as you were talking about even the different books of the Bible as well, I wanted to check in too and see if I've been reading a lot recently, people saying that the gospel of John out of the four gospels would be more of a mystical stream as well. And I feel like that someone who's familiar, very familiar with the Bible, what an invitation to go back and read that perhaps for through a mystical lens, so to speak, seeing what it can reveal to about the things you were just sharing as well. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad you brought that up, uh, Lacey, because when it comes to the four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so many scholars, uh, East and West, have said that John is the most mystical of the four. And, you know, there's this wonderful commentary, I think, on the gospel of John by an Indian, you know, India, India Indian. Um, his name is Ravi Ravindra. And I can't remember the exact title, but if you were to look up Ravi Ravindra, you would see his book that's, that's on the Gospel of John. And it's just wonderful. You know, he talks about how the Gospel of John really connects with a lot of what he understands about Hindu mysticism. You know, that there's, you know, links and, and of course, in, in all spiritual traditions, there's, you know, there's hidden uh, or, or, you know, lines of connection. You know, there's, uh, it, or, Invisible Lines of Connection. And that's another great book, actually. That it's, uh, it's by a rabbi. I think, is it Rabbi Lawrence Kushner who wrote Invisible Lines of Connection? Anyway, it's a, re- it's a really good book. Well, I think that's showing how it can be both distinct in following the path of Christ, and once you dip into these waters, you see, see the connections as well right. amongst different traditions. Well, and you, you have humility, and humility just says straight up, my path is not the only path. You know, my religion is not the only religion. That's just humble, you know, and that's what, that's what happens, I think, on the spiritual path is... Well, and that's being open to mystery. Right. Because mystery is not knowing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and, and it's saying, you know, this path is right for me, mm. but I'm not going to get up on a high horse and just mandate that it's right for everybody. Yeah. Well... We've explored a bit of mystics of the past and some tools that people can use to familiarize themselves with the mystic path. I know that you outline 
five primary roots of contemporary Christian mysticism in your work as well. So could you share those roots? And perhaps I'm wondering, like, who is the person that is drawn to, to mysticism? And when you talk about perhaps pursuing that today, I know we've tapped into that a bit, but what, what does that look like even starting small, starting once someone even finishes listening to this episode? Well, before I get to the small, let me get to the big. Um, sure. <laughs> so, so, so the big is, the big is that Augustine said we all have a God shaped hole in our lives. Mm. Now, people will try to fill that hole with all kinds of things. Some will try to fill it with a million dollars. Some will try to fill it in a bar with you know one more shot of tequila. Some will try to fill it in a brothel. You know, everyone in, in one way or another is searching and they're trying to fill that God-shaped hole. And, and I have some adrenaline rush uh, friends, you know, one in particular who likes to jump out of airplanes. And so, you know, that's how he thinks that that's going to fulfill him somehow because he feels that there's this nagging emptiness. And it sounds cliche, but, but you know, I, I really think that uh, one of the writers in American history who really had it right was uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And, you know, and he said that most people lead lives of quiet desperation. And it's because that they have that God-shaped hole, you know, and they, they thought that, that the relationship would be the end-all be-all, or they thought that next high, you know, would be the end-all be-all high, or whatever the case may be, that, that second million dollars, man, you know, they would have really arrived and really feel good about themselves. But after, after all those goals have been attained, there's still an emptiness. So I think that's what the mystics try to address, is that, that we're hardwired for deep intimacy and connection with our source, with a capital S. And nothing else will ultimately satisfy until we make that connection. No person can fill that, that God-shaped hole. No... no amount of money, you know, no hedge fund portfolio, you know, it's just not possible. So what I, what I would encourage you to do is those who are watching or sorry, listening to this uh, podcast is uh, I would encourage you to actually start sitting in silence for as much as you can stand. You know, my friend Rich Lewis said when, when he, when he started out a few years ago, he said, you know, sitting in silence for five minutes is brutal. That, that was a direct quote, you know, and it is, it's hard. And, and that's, that's really authentic spirituality. I think it's infinitely simple and it's infinitely difficult. And that's true of silence. It's infinitely simple, right? Just to sit in silence, but it's infinitely difficult because our minds are constantly bouncing around and the, um, the average mind has a new incoming thought every two or three seconds. So to quiet the mind is a colossal challenge. But as Thomas Keating often says, you know, silence is God's first language and everything else is a poor translation. So really to become more intimate with silence and stillness in whatever way you possibly can. And I would recommend centering prayer tradition. That's my tradition. But if you just Google centering prayer guidelines, they'll jump right up and you can see the guidelines and, uh, and you can start and just start with whatever's 
And I would actually encourage you to put a little discipline into it and say, you know what, no matter what happens, I'm going to try this for 30 days. And I'm going to sit for as long as I possibly can. And if it might be one day, two day, you know, two minutes, another day might be four minutes, but just sit every single day for 30 days and then see after that if you want to explore it further. And so as they're beginning to engage in silence, in centering prayer, perhaps, and I imagine that's one of the roots as well. Yes. Of mysticism, Christian mysticism, what? are the other roots to draw from? Well, you know, when it, when it comes to the five roots of, of centering uh, or of Christian mysticism that I identify, it all, I, I would say it all starts with a, a silent prayer practice. So, so for me and for Rich Lewis and others, it all starts with centering prayer. Mm-hmm. But then in time, as, as you progress in centering prayer, you start to see other things holistically. So, the Jesus paradox, which is another root, is seeing Jesus in a holistic way. Nonviolence, uh, which is a, a third root of Christian mysticism, which uh, is very, very strong in the Quakers, that's the basis of the golden rule. Like, you know, we can argue about what it means to love one another, but there's one baseline that if, if we're going to try to follow the golden rule, we have to start by not being violent towards the other. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to note, too, that that's not simply, you know, violence with a gun or a sword, as we might think of more directly, but even in our our language, our communication. Yes. When we exclude people, stiff arm people. And also, I expand that nonviolence to nonviolence uh, towards the environment. It, in, in, in today's world, uh, we, we can't stop at just nonviolence towards people. It has to be towards ecosystems, towards the environment. Yeah. And so planting trees is a nonviolent act. Mm. So, yeah, so I, we've talked about centering prayer and nonviolence. And we talked about the Jesus paradox, uh, which is seeing Jesus holistically. And then new monasticism is taking monastic tradition and bringing it into our contemporary 21st century lives. Yeah. In appropriate ways. You know, we, we don't have to wear a robe. We don't have to live in a monastery. But we can have monastic practices such as, you know, daily readings and walking meditation and so on. And then the, um, the last one is just Christian mysticism. And it, it's basically just reading and emulating Christian mystics past and present. For me, contemporary mystics are particularly important. And so, you know, some of my heroes are, you know, are, are Thomas Keating and, and, and Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau. Yeah. It seems like immersing yourself in the stream, really. Yes, yes. Those cool, refreshing waters. Yes. That flow throughout time. And I I imagine, you know, in a mystical perspective, too, even though these, you might be reading sayings of mystics of old, through their sayings, are still very much living today. Yes. What is that saying? What, What is true has always been true or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's just a rediscovery. And, you know, in, it's funny, in, in, orth, in, uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, what they call revolution is, I think, different than what we uh, you know, call revolution. It's, it's a revitalization of those things that were the most life-giving in the past, you know. So it's, it's not necessarily something new. You know, and I, th- I think although, you know, some people sometimes ask me, like, why study Christian mystics of all things? I mean, what can they possibly have to say to us in the 21st century? Well, they may have been clueless about the technological age. The, many of them may have been clueless about the, you know, the scientific 
revolution. But they speak to us in a way that we most need to hear, which is how to take all the fragments and take all of the discontinuity and the discordant notes and the polarization and to somehow find unity, to somehow find, you know, integrity and and a holistic approach to our lives. And that's where the mystics excel. I mean, that's where they're brilliant. That's where they're geniuses. Yeah. Well, and you can see we're hungry for it. Even even on the news, I hear reports, you know, about people that are talking about technological addiction and things like that and pursuit of happiness that that the the world this time is is ripe for that return. Yes. To that source, to that to that baseline. I want to be sure to touch on your book, your new book before we finish. And particularly the title even just stands out to me, Be Still and Listen, Experiencing the Presence of God in Your Life. And I wanted to focus on still and listen. We've talked about the stillness a bit more when we've talked about silence, but what about that listening piece is essential to this path? Well, and how does one lead to the other, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of mystics, especially in the Eastern Church, who say that the key verse in the entire Bible for understanding mystic tradition is Psalm 46, verse 10, mm. which is, be still and know that I am God. Yeah. Now, in the Eastern Church, they have a, a different way of translating that verse, and they, it's, they say, practice stillness and know God. And they think so highly of this verse that in Eastern lands, it is written above the doorways of monasteries, practice stillness and know God, you know, Psalm 46, verse 10. And that to me is the that to me and to them, you know, is the essence of the whole path. But you know, how can we really listen to someone else when we're just always, you know, thinking about what we're gonna say next or mm. you know, we've got our own agenda going all the time. I mean, to really listen to another person, I think we have to be empty, we have to be receptive. Yeah. We can't be distracted, you know. Yeah. And it's a solution to so many of our problems. I mean, some of the biggest challenges I've had in my relationship with my wife, you know, by a breakthrough in listening, that I finally heard her. Like I had not been hearing her. And then all of a sudden, oh, that's what you mean, you know? And, and often, often deep listening is also about asking clarifying questions because we think we understand, but we really don't. So, mm. and that's how we get to understand each other uh, instead of just shaking fists at each other, you know? Yeah, which leads to that intimacy. Yes, yes. Where we began. Mm. Well, I want to be sure to ask you my final questions, which I like to ask everyone, but I want to also go back to, um, it could be, you could talk about either your your six to 10 day retreats that you've done or your time in India, but, and we don't have much time left, so it probably won't do it justice, but what, how would you trace, like, what is the internal journey that goes on when someone goes on a, you know, 10 or even 30 day retreat to the heart of mysticism, to silence, to intimacy? What, what are the steps on the journey and what are the trademark challenges, the breakthroughs, the moments of encounter? Well, I will say that the, the most profound retreat that I ever had was a result of, of what I would say training. And that sounds kind of funny, but, but you know, I, I, 
I, I grew up as an athlete. And so that's how, it, and what I mean by that is that to build up to the 10 day retreat, I was doing two to three hours of meditation a day for about a month. And so by the time the retreat came, you know, because mysticism and, and, you know, and silent prayer and all this stuff, it, it's not like, it's not like some smooth rock that we can hold in our hand. It's a river. And, you know, and it's constantly moving and we never step into the same river twice, but to prepare for that 10 day retreat, you know, and to meditate two or three hours a day for 30 days, then you're, when you go on retreat, you really reap the fullest benefits because you go super deep. Mm. Yeah. Rather than taking a few days to really shake it off. But if you can like surfing the internet and having, he haven't even had time to do like 20 minutes a day and then all of a sudden do a 10 day, I don't think it's going to do much for you, honestly. Yeah. So I would, I would start, you know, I would just start incrementally. So start with a practice and then maybe after three or six months of practice, do a, a weekend retreat. And then after three or four weekend retreats, do maybe a five or six day retreat and, and build up to a, a longer thing. I think that's how it happens organically. I mean, we want a quick fix. We want to experience. We want to jump into the deep end. Do, by all means, jump into the deep end. Do a 10-day Vipassana retreat. That's, by the way, that's the SN Goenka School of Vipassana. And there's four Vipassana retreat centers in the United States. And the first entry-level retreat, a 10-day retreat, they welcome all different religions. It's just a method of meditation. It's not tied to any religion. But one way or another, do whether it's putting your, your feet in the shallow end to start, or if your personality is just a, a wahoo, you know, a cannonball <laughs> in, yeah. in, in the deep end, whatever it is. That's what Riches seemed to be like. He was all in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, I, I have to say, it is the saving grace of my life. It's the inspiration of my, all of my writing. It's what's kept my family together and my ministry intact. And and it's been such so life-giving to me that I want to, if, if I possibly can, inspire other people to experience what I've experienced. Mm. Well, thank you so much. these last few questions, I, I, I ask everyone. And so they're kind of first thing come that comes to your mind, rapid fire. So, okay, go ahead. If you're ready, since my work is about pilgrimage on the topic of pilgrimage, and I was even hearing as you were talking about preparing that I can see how even that is a pilgrimage and that echoes the stages of pilgrimage, not just, you don't just show up to the destination, but there's the season of preparation there's the time away, but just as important too is bringing that back into everyday life for it to be lasting. So now this is your time for you to answer. So if you were going on a pilgrimage, where would you want to go next? I would want to go to Spain, mm. to the Camino. Yeah. And I would want to go with my wife. Do you think you would bring... I mean, silence, in, would you walk together in silence too? And then also not in silence? I'd be curious how you'd bring, obviously you'd be doing probably your centering prayer practice. How else might that be a mystical experience for you? Well, I, for one thing, I'll leave the nine-year-old at home. <laughs> <That'll help. laughs> okay, yeah. No, I, I love the guy, but you know. Uh-huh. 
But for another thing, I think just certain times of day that are silent. So maybe up until noon, we just practice silence, you know, silent breakfast, and then maybe at lunch, you know, break the silence, something like that. But I'd, I'd have to work it out, you know, with my gal. Well, yeah. And whether you're walking separately or even together, that speaks to that intimacy that even happens when you're together, but you can be in silence. Yeah. Such great depth in that too. I always find that powerful in facilitating groups whenever we walk together in silence. It just shifts the whole tone. Yeah. And, and hold hands. And, you know, and she, uh, she was born and raised a Catholic and she loves Pope Francis and, and she would recommend the new Pope Francis movie to everyone. And she, you know, she, she prays the rosary and, um, you know, and I, I pray the Jesus prayer. It's just, she would have her rosary and I would have my, you know, my prayer rope and we would go that way too. Yeah. Both joining in the footsteps of pilgrims of old. Well, what about your daily life? What, what journey are you on right now? Well, right now I, I just, I can't stop writing. Even, even <laughs> if I try, I just, I just can't stop. I, I wake up and I start writing. Um, so. Well, and that's what a lot of this recent book is, isn't it? Reflections from a time of retreat. Yeah. And, and the, the thing that, I, that I'm writing about now is just the, the Quaker mystics that I love, you know, like Ruf, oh, yeah. Rufus Jones and Caroline Stephen. And, uh, you know, a lot of people or Thomas R. Kelly. A lot of people don't know these names, but these are amazing people. Deep, you know, reverberations of the Reformation. And they're all about anchoring religion in experience, actual personal experience. So I'm just loving these people right now. And that's that's what I'm writing about. Well, and finally, what I know we've already shared a multitude of resources, but are, are there any any final thoughts that you'd want to leave for those who who want to go on this journey, practices or practical tools? Well, you know, there's there's an elder in the Eastern Church uh, by the name of Thaddeus, and um, what he's famous for saying is that our thoughts determine our lives. And he actually wrote a book with that title, Our Thoughts Determine Our Lives. We don't pay enough attention to thoughts. We have a brilliant idea, but we don't write it down. We're reading through uh, a, you know, a page and, and we, we miss a few lines and we don't even know why. So I, I think being more like having more mindfulness, not, not only about our, our lives and our relationships, whatever, but about our thoughts. That's what I would leave people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I like to invite people to offer a benediction to, to close our time. So do you have one you would like to share along these themes? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And it's, um, it's one that I, that I memorized when I was a teenager and I was a lifeguard of a pool, and I had a lot of time on my hands, but I've, I've always recited it to myself. It's uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks for joining with us today. Find episode notes and sign up to receive updates and a free pilgrim guide at asacredjourney.net slash podcast. And subscribe to Pilgrim Podcasts through Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you'd leave a review on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. When you leave a review, it helps other seekers just like you find Pilgrim Podcast. To find out how to leave a review, visit asacredjourney.net slash podcast. I'll be back again next month with another conversation on practicing pilgrimage at home and abroad. Until then, blessings on the journey.